0: How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Well, guys, it's uh, episode 25 of How About That Cigar. 25. So we're a quarter century old now. Um, thank you guys so much for watching and listening. If you're listening on the audio podcast after the fact on whichever audio platform you listen on, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Um, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you make sure and don't miss new episodes when they come out. And um, if you are watching live on Facebook, please take a second and share us to your favorite Facebook cigar groups before they're banned forever from Facebook because, mm. you know, you know how they do.
1: That's a thing. So, uh, uh, Garrett, how you doing? Dude, I'm it's been a it's been a busy but good week, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Vikings won.
0: Yeah, football. We had, uh, you know, beginning of the NFL season. Oh. So ugh, Vikings had a huge win. Yep. Um,
1: Packers had a. Packers
0: Packers had a win. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just really that was
1: a tough game to watch.
0: It was a very tough game to watch, especially me being a diehard Green Bay Packer fan. But you being a diehard Minnesota Viking fan, that was yeah. you know fun to uh, you know fun to see. They just they really dominated that
1: game. The fact when you can win by you know uh, a pretty decent margin, and your quarterback only attempts ten passes, yeah. Dude, yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, that was great. Uh, in other NFL news, we had the uh, Antonio Brown going to New England. Uh, we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, we've got a special guest who has some ideas and opinions on that matter. Um, but all in all, yeah, it was a, it was a great week. The Twins um, are still clipping along and. Yeah, the Twins. I mean, we lost two out of three to
0: Cleveland, mm-hmm. um, but we're still five games up. We started a, a series with the Nats tonight. Yep. I don't know where they're at. right. I know the game's live right now. I don't know where the score's at, but no. Um, and then we so we do three against uh, the Nationals, and then we go against Cleveland again. Yep. So I mean, we just, uh, but we've got so we lost uh, uh, Michael Pineda. Yeah uh peds thank three years in a row i think we've lost a pitcher to peds yep um and we uh i don't i don't know who ended up in the lineup tonight there were some questionable guys buxton's out pretty much i think period he's he's gone i think
1: i'm pretty sure that's Um, the case
0: and then we uh we lost uh um cave was hurt and kepler was hurt and Sano. they were all on the list i don't know if they made it in the lineup tonight or not but
1: and our rock star pitcher is giving up dingers left and right. Nice. Yep. So, um.
0: Well, guys, uh, again, episode twenty-five. How about that cigar? And you know, one of the things that we've talked about so much in in uh you know our early beginnings of this this podcast is you know really wanting consumers to be be more involved. You know, even casual consumers who only you know, maybe smoke a hundred cigars a year or, or or somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, we, we want everybody to know as much as they can about, you know, these products that we love so much and mm-hmm. be involved and, and be engaged and and know what's going on really. And part of that is talking about tobacco and the way there's some these cigars are made and things like that. And um, one of the people in the industry who who just really has um, such a breadth of tobacco knowledge uh, is Mr. Steve Saka from Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. And we are very, very fortunate to have him on the broadcast tonight. So, Steve, welcome to How About That Cigar. How are you doing this evening?
2: I'm good, guys. How are you?
0: We're fantastic. Doing
1: great. Honored to have you.
0: Yeah, we're really we're honored to have you on the show, and we appreciate your time. And uh, we know it's a busy time of year for you right now, but we're excited to talk about everything tonight. We can talk about football and tobacco and, and meat and everything else in between.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, in the pre-show I know,
2: whatever, <laughs> I asked
1: Steve if he was a New England fan knowing that he's from uh the east side of the country and uh he said yes indeed and we started talking about the Antonio Brown, to New England amongst Who? a lot of other things. Who? AB
0: a- AB. Okay. Well, AB. No, I think I've heard of him.
1: Yeah. Uh we all agreed that uh that deal started at least 11 months ago. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. That that was not, you know, uh, it was it was
0: played off and uh, given press as though it was a recent development, but that
1: was in the works for a long time.
2: I can this conspiracy nonsense for the record.
1: <laughs> so, Steve, being a, a Pats fan, yeah. what are your feelings on the AB uh, movement over?
2: Well, you know, we we all, it's kind of jokingly that whole in Bill we trust" thing, <laughs> but you know, it, there's a certain amount of truth to it. Eh? But this is not an unusual pattern for Belichick. He has this uh, knack at picking up castaways or disgruntled superstar players. And they come in and, you know, sometimes it works out amazing like Corey Dillon or Randy Moss. And Mm -hmm. other times it just kind of falls flat. But the thing about it is every time this has happened in the past, you know, like Revis, for example, it wasn't that Revis was a problem player, but he really had kind of cooled. He wasn't the lockdown Revis that he was. You know, he kind of lost his step a little. And, you know, coming to the Patriots revitalized him, which then led to him getting a very large, substantial follow up contract, but not from the Patriots. Um, so when I look at these things, the deal makes a lot of difference. So I think, I think basically we're kind of playing with house money. I mean, yeah, looking at a $9 million contract. Um, It's only a six million dollar salary cap hit this year. Worst case scenario, it's a total bust and you're you're out nine million dollars, which I mean, sounds like a big deal. But in the long run, it really isn't if Antonio Brown can contribute. And I mean, I know right now we don't need him, but, you know, who knows if, uh, you know, Josh Gordon's going to make it. You know, the guy Josh Gordon's been a drug addict since, what, the age of 12? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like he's a recreational drug user. You know, he's got a real problem that stems back to before he was a teenager. So you don't know that Josh Gordon's going to make it. You don't know, you know, Julian Edelman. We lost him for a season with an ACL. Any player is any game away from actually being out for the season. So I think Antonio Brown, you know, we all – we all realize that we're in the twilight years of Brady's career now. I don't know when that is. I'm stunned that he plays the way he still plays. But we are in the twilight. You want to maximize that opportunity. So I, I think Antonio Brown is a good bet. The worst that's going to happen is we would have pissed away $9 million. And <laughs> also, typical fashion of Belichick, uh, we have the option for the second year, and it's entirely a team option. And uh, we would get uh, Antonio for twenty million the second year, which is about what the going rate was before he had this whole debacle in Oakland. He was at—I mean, what the deal with Oakland was a sixty-five million-dollar contract, mm-hmm. yeah, with Here's. thirty million guaranteed. So I mean, Antonio took a twenty-one million-dollar hit on guaranteed money. So uh, Antonio really. It's all up to him. I mean, he's going to come to New England. He's going to be given an opportunity. And uh, he can make or do what he will with it. But I think if we have the same nonsense in New England, I find it very hard to think of a GM with a respectable club that's in contention would give Antonio a big contract. Yeah, I really I really think that this is kind of it's, – it's more about what Antonio does. I, I actually – I think the off field nonsense isn't gonna be quite the level of like you're not gonna get social media is just part of the the way things work.
0: Yeah, you can't get rid and of it now.
2: People don't care about social media because there's plenty of players that are on social media all the time. What you care about is stupid stuff on social media. So it's not that you don't want A B on social media, you just don't want him, you know, posting, you know
0: No dick pics.
2: Right. You don't want to, you illegal know, <laughs> recordings of you and your head coach. You don't want Facebook live and your team, you know, post game, you know, uh, uh, locker room talks, you know, um, yeah. you know, you don't want all that, all of that. But uh, I, I think the hardest part for AB is, is it going to be OK with being a 50 to 60 yard, 60 catches, 70 catches kind of receiver?
0: I think he's got an eye on a ring, so I think he's okay with it.
2: hmm That tends to be what happens. He's
0: yeah. looking for he's looking for legacy. I think he's I think at this point he's legacy minded. And well, and he's, he's
2: legacy uh, minded, but if he doesn't do well and he doesn't fit in, how's he ever gonna get his payday that he's won?
3: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: Get it. He just lost twenty-one million. Let's not kid ourselves. Now I know he has the potential to earn fifteen million this year, but I mean that other six million. It's all based on performance. Like one of one of the millions, I think, is attached to 106 catches and over. Yeah, the chances of Antonio Brown getting 106 catches on a Patriots team is not likely.
0: That's very slim.
2: It's not. It's just not. I mean, well, they
0: work out too much.
2: Yeah, it's just there's just the ball spread around. I mean, you got Dorsett, you got Josh Gordon, you got Edelman, you got James White out of the backfield. Rex Burkhead kicks the ball. Hell, we have a fullback that catches balls. I think, right. I think full Devlin has one of the best receiver percentages on our team. I don't know if he's ever had a drop when yeah. he gets targeted. So, I mean, the ball gets really spread around. Even Sonny Michel can catch a ball out on the backfield. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, it's uh,
0: Boy, it's I, too bad you guys don't have any good players. I mean, seriously.
2: You know what's so weird? It's such a yeah. feast of because literally we came out of the end of last season losing Gronk. Yep. We didn't know Gordon was ever coming back. Um, we really pretty much just had Edelman and we had Dorsett who had a lot of promise, but got, yeah. injured, so we never really saw him play much. We had Chris Hogan that had a few brief moments, but look, Chris Hogan's a number three on any team. I mean, I don't even think Chris Hogan's a number two for most teams. No,
0: he's, he's the number three on most teams, I think.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of came into this season or before, you know, we came out of the last season with really, Almost the cupboard's completely bare on the receiver core. And here we find ourselves in a wealth of riches that, oh, well, you know what? Demarius Thomas, we don't need him anymore. You know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. Good it is, is that, oh, we're going to ship Demarius Thomas out. You know? So, mm.
0: um, Steve, really quick, uh, we're firing up the first time for both Garrett and I trying the Silver Mesa Brulee. So, yep. uh, it's, uh, it's, Excited to try this one since uh, it was announced before IPCPR. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't be at IPCPR, but uh, I finally uh, uh, was able to get my hands on a couple of these, and uh, we're excited to try it. Um, uh, just to veer away from football, really quick, just uh, tell uh, f- tell everybody a little bit about the uh, Sober Mesa Brulee while we fire it up.
2: Yeah, it's an adaptation of the Sober Mesa blend. Um, I've dropped out uh, the La and I have. Uh, I've increased the base the Seco from Condega in it mm-hmm. and then you've got the uh, Ecuador Connecticut wrapper uh, and uh, the wrapper's aged it's rather right, most of the wrappers between 4 and 5 years old of bale aging on it
3: mm-hmm. so,
2: and it's actually it's a grade 2 not a grade 1 which doesn't sound very sexy but that has to do with the way Connecticut shade tobaccos are graded um, color determines whether you could be a grade one or a grade two, only the uh, uh, the really bright yellow and uh, kind of a slight greenish tinge, not the candela, but greenish tinge, uh, which are YW and GWs are in grade one. And then if you want what you would consider to be um, like on a Macanudo, that would be considered an LW, light wrapper. What you're looking at would be classified as a BW. So it's a bit more darker, slighter, darker cafe kind of shade. And so the highest quality you can get in those color ranges is what they actually classify as a grade two. But the reality is grade one and grade two are the same quality-wise, just different color classifications fit of the grades.
1: You just like read a chapter in <laughs> 50 Shades of Cigars, and it was so hot. 50, 50 Shades <laughs> of Cigars. <laughs> That's, that's got to be the name of your book. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, the thing is, I, I like using the Ecuador Look, – I've never been a big fan, but if I had to choose between Connecticut, Connecticut and Ecuador, Connecticut, I'll go Ecuador, Connecticut every time. Um, not only is it more readily available, but it also um, it has higher tensile strength. It isn't nearly as fragile, and it also doesn't have a tendency to turn – Uh, bitter the way some of the other ones are so i mean connecticut connecticut turns bitter much quicker than ecuador connecticut
0: um so Mm. for this for this particular blend when um when you decided you were going to put this blend on the market was it what was really the, the main reason behind it? Is it because of nostalgia, because of you desiring yeah. those Connecticut's of old? Or was it because you were specifically looking something for the Dunbarton uh, uh, portfolio? Or was it a mix of both?
2: Um, you know, not really nostalgic. I mean, the, ben, the blend was developed with a bit of nostalgia. I mean, because, look, I used to smoke Connecticut cigars. I smoked a lot of them in the 80s. I don't know why, just over the years I've found them very thin and wispy and more bitter and less depth and less flavor, even more. And, you know, you wonder, well, is it just because I'm progressing and I've moved up and I'm smoking stronger, darker-style materials, more Maduros, more sun-growns, or are they really just more bitter, thinner, more acrid? And I've actually come to the conclusion that they're just bitter, thinner, and more acrid, that for whatever reason we somehow got off the rails – and then all of the better blenders, they seem to be focused on making this not your grandfather's Connecticut, making these stronger, spicier, mm-hmm. more robust Connecticuts. And mm-hmm. I just look at that as an oxymoron. I don't even understand who that cigar is for because the guy that smokes Connecticut shade, he smokes it because he wants a milder cigar. Yeah. That's why he's buying it. So the guy that wants a stronger cigar, uh, he's not going to smoke Connecticut shades. So what do you end up happening? You have all these new blends that are spicier and stronger. And sure, the guys, the bloggers and guys like me say, Oh, that was a really good for Connecticut. But in the end, we don't start buying Connecticut shade cigars. We just go back to our sun growns and our Maduros and our more robust Nicaraguans. And for the guys that do like Connecticut shade cigars, they don't really buy in on it either because that's not what they want out of a Connecticut shade. So to me, It only makes sense that if you're going to make something out of a particular material, it's your job to focus and highlight what is that material and what it delivers. It's like me saying, hey, I want to make something that's like super bitey and robust out of, you know, truffles and lobster. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It's like it just doesn't make any sense to me. So that's, you know, so from the blending point of view, yes. And that blend isn't a new blend. I actually made that back in 2005 when I was making the original Sober Mesa blend. Um, Now, waiting, you know, four years later, almost five years later, to actually release it is really more uh, a mechanic of the marketplace. Even though 50% of the cigars in the market smoked are on the milder, light side. And shade side, those consumers are the most difficult to actually get because they're very locked into their legacy brands. They're smoking their Macs. They're smoking their Ashes. They're smoking their Romeos. They're smoking their Monty Whites. Yeah. Um, so they're very locked in. They don't really follow social media in any way at all. Um, they're not typically my kind of genre of smoker. Somebody smokes a cigar blended by me. They expect it to be on the more robust full side. So I don't have a built-in audience for it. And you don't get much social media benefit or blogger love on milder Connecticut Shades cigars. Yeah, sure, they'll give you a good review here and there, but they don't get enthralled by it in any way. So you're kind of, here you are, your little company, unknown brand, and you've got, you're fighting against companies that have, Huge legacies, legacy brands, built in customers, multi million dollar marketing budgets. You don't get the easy avenue on social media. I mean, just think about it in these terms. If half the cigars smoked in America are mild in shade, why aren't half the pictures on social media of mild shade cigars? Yeah. How many pictures do you see of mild shade cigars? Are they even one out of 300?
0: Yeah, it's not many.
2: It's no. Not many. So, I mean, so you, you, it's a very difficult uphill climb to get commercial penetration. Now, it's the one with the biggest upside because the market's the largest, but it's a very hard customer to reach as an unknown company. Um, And uh, so I was always reluctant to make it one of my earlier releases because I knew it was gonna be a crapshoot as to whether it would be successful. And then at the same time, I also kind of got tired of being at a cigar event Guy would come in and be like, hey, I, I really like, you know, mild cigars. What do you recommend? And I look at what I had and I'm like, I really don't recommend anything. I mean, Sober Mesa El Americano is definitely medium. I think a guy that smokes mild could smoke many of the larger formats of the regular Sober Mesa and be just fine. Yeah. Um, but it's scary to them. It's very dark looking. It looks very strong. Even yeah. Though it is a medium balanced, kind of more elegant, nuanced, you know, complex style cigar. But still, to the guy that smokes Connecticut Shea, the guy that's smoking an Ashton cabinet or a diamond crown, mesa mm-hmm. it's a little intimidating. Yeah. So I needed something. Cause what was happening is I beat an event and I would end up walking the guy in the humidor and pointing out six or seven other company cigars. I say, yeah,
3: hey, <laughs> one you ought to try. Yeah.
2: Well, so it was, I was like, you know what, L- let me do it. What's the worst that's going to happen. I'm not going to sell a lot of them, but it's there. It's something I don't have in the portfolio. Um, I never envisioned my guys that smoke Mike Rita or Sin Compromiso or you know Todos Los Dias for sure becoming brulee buyers. Just wasn't made for them. You know, it was made for the guy that wants mild, smooth, creamy, you know. Just trying to make something that's mild, smooth, creamy, sweet, that's appealing as best as I can make it. So trying to make the best of that style cigar it'll be interesting to see 3 years from now where it stands or doesn't stand
0: well and guys so guys who like that kind of cigar you know guys who like this kind of cigar that is that is truly that style it's it falls right into that pocket it's mild it's creamy mm-hmm. it's smooth um even through the nose it's smooth it's so i i i picture a guy going into You know, he sits down at a table at a restaurant, and for whatever reason, he says, I'm going to order a bowl of ice cream, and he orders a bowl of ice cream, and he starts to eat the ice cream, and the ice cream tastes like sriracha and black pepper. The the guy would be pissed. Right. The same as if he sat down and ordered, you know, a, a porterhouse, and it tasted creamy and mild and sweet. The guy would be pissed. So I think... For the most part, I think it's I think experimentation and 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 kind of you know working a lot of different magic with some blending and things like that is is great. But at the same time, especially for this style of cigar, the smoker wants what the smoker wants. The smoker wants exactly mm-hmm. that. The smoker wants, like you said, those legacy brands that you know people have a hard time letting go of. You know. Um, that's exactly what they want. And if they get something other than that, uh, they're gonna be upset. So
2: I, I hedged a little. I mean I, I made it in the three formats that are the most popular with those consumers, robusto, Toro, and Gordo. Yeah, you know, which is very unusual for me because I almost always make something that's more of a geek format. I, I happen to like thick lawnsdales. I happen to like you know some sort of fat Corona size. I, I tend to like some smaller things in the mix. But these consumers, that's not what they smoke. And I'm not saying I won't. Look, if Sober Mesa Brulee ends up being commercially successful, I, think, I won't really know by yeah. next year, but I'll have a sense as to where it's heading.
1: Lancero, no, Lancero, no, no, No,
3: no, 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 no,
2: no. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, it's not that I'm opposed. And I've actually made that same cigar. The blend is finalized on the Short Churchill size it still needs a little tweaking in the Lonsdale format before I would consider that one ready for prime time. Yeah. I'm just going to wait and see because now you're making, I think the thing I'm the most surprised about on brulee is a kind of twofold. Um, I'm a little surprised by the discussion about sweet tip, not sweet tip, because even though I get some sweetness, it's just, it doesn't taste at all like a sweet tip cigar. Sweet tip cigars are very, you can tell. You put a host in your mouth, you put a Baccarat in your mouth, you put a Drew Estate Laraton or, you know, a Sweet Jane. I mean, it's very evident. You're going to find is as you smoke more brulees, I think if you smoke five or six of them, you'll get some that taste a little sweeter than others. And somewhere you'll notice like no sweetness at all um, on that initial. And that's just the variation in the wrapper. Whereas if I was sweetening it, it would just be consistently sweet all the time from cigar to cigar yeah i'm not smart enough to say hey we're gonna do different sweetnesses on all these cigars randomly um so um but honestly i don't even mind the discussion i don't even care if someone thinks it's sweet tip to be honest with you if that's what motivates them to say hey i heard that this is or may not nobody knows you know (laughs) he says this be lies Blah 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 if that's what it takes to get a consumer to try it to decide whether they like it or they don't like it, they want to add it to the rotation, not add it to the rotation, that's good for me because I mean, a lot of times half the challenge is just getting people to try something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm
2: actually okay with the conversation to be honest with you. And I don't really care one way or the other, actually. Yeah. I am gonna but it's funny, because of this conversation that's been occurring over the last couple months, um, Next trip to Nico, I'm gonna actually make some sweet tip ones.
1: Mm, okay.
2: Yeah, I'm just curious. I never really I mean, do it, man. Heck, maybe I'll maybe I'll release us. The thing is, here's the problem with sweet tip for me in this post FDA world. I just, I just don't even want to really go there because I just don't know that it's oh. going around.
0: Yeah, it's a big risk.
2: Years, three years from. Like, I'm not gonna go to prison over it or anything, but mm-hmm. do I really want to make something that ends? Because look. Baccarat is still a very big selling brand
1: mm-hmm.
2: at Nat Sherman.
1: I was just oh, going to say Nat is Sherman.
2: Like 50% of all of Nat Sherman sales, that one sweet tip cigar, that's half of everything they sell. Yeah. Uh, Drew Estate, more than half of what they sell is probably sweet tip.
3: Oh, so probably- there's
2: a market in there. There's a huge market for these cigars, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, these are companies that already have established products me if i'm going to invest in something and i have a chance of losing it and that would kind of suck but i I may make one and just do it as a limited you know hey here you go here's a real brulee you know sweet sweet you know i don't know but it may it may introduce even more confusion in the marketplace Well, and
0: and like i said when we started you know this is the first time garrett and i are trying this cigar and um when i when i cut it and i and i lit it up uh yeah it tastes sweet but i don't
2: that's why I named it brulee I mean I thought it was sweet too yeah <laughs> it wasn't that I just plucked the name out of the dictionary the, the name is descriptive of what the cigar is
1: yeah I was gonna ask if you use sugar glue you know oh. it uh it was definitely sweet and, and I like it uh, <laughs> real quick uh, I just want to thank everybody again who's tuned in live to um please like and share the video Um, and we also have a special question from Skip Martin. (laughs) Skip would like to know how much has your new skinny wardrobe cost you? And did you buy all new or do you keep different sizes of those crazy (laughs) pattern, French cuffed brick joints for the functions, for the, 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 the fluctuations, fluctuations,
2: Crazy Pattern French Cup Brick Joints. I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> description of um, I haven't spent a lot. Um, I have a lot of clothes size. I mean, I've been pretty much uh, ranging between 300 and regretfully almost 400 for a very, very long time. So uh, I have a lot of very big, very nice clothes. Um, so I, I haven't had to spend too much on it. I mean, look, I wear a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, like, really oversized because it's what I got. Um,
0: well, tell, for, for people who don't know, tell them to walk everybody really quick. Give the cliff note version of this this wager that you have going with uh, with Abe and uh, Nimish.
2: Yeah, I have this uh, menage a trois of a, <laughs> of a bet. It's between Abe, Nimish, and myself. It was a four-month bet. You had to lose percent, 15% of your starting body weight. Or you would have to do a cigar event in drag was the deal. And Ooh. what ended up happening is all three of us made the fifteen percent mark. Me just barely, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know how close. Yeah, the other guys, I don't know how close they were in the end, but it was we all just kind of barely made. it was hard. Fifteen percent in four months. Dude. It was a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and uh, but we got to the end of the bet and we all won. And look. We understand that's not very exciting for people. I mean, everybody wants us to lose weight and get healthier, but most people. I'm sure some people just rather I die. But for the most part, let's say (laughs) most people want you to get healthier. But somebody wanted somebody to lose because what fun is that that nobody lost? Yeah. And uh, so we just basically said, you know what? Let's do another four months. And uh, at the end of that four months, whoever loses the least percentage, absolutely loses and must wear the dress yeah <laughs> and, uh, so that event is on november 8th at smoke in in Boynton beach oh and, nice uh, we actually will i mean we may we won't know the loser until like the day or two before because the weigh-ins at abe's house and uh we're not even going to reveal who lost. We're going to show up together in a limo. <laughs> and we're going to step out of the limo and one of us three fat fucks is going to be in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. the way it's going to be.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, I heard uh uh I heard Abe on the most recent uh uh episode of KMA saying that he he doesn't care. He said he's he's good either way. If it, it if it ends up being him wearing the dress, he's okay with
2: it. And I'm kind of there too because I got to tell you I was first like really like bothering me. I'm bothering me. That's the wrong way. When I started that thing, it was good until I got to about two and a half months. And then I totally stalled. And I just, for 10 days I didn't lose a pound. And I was eating like 1200 calories a day.
3: Yeah.
2: all, All protein. And in order to not lose the bet, I ended up basically going on like a water and lemon juice and two tablespoons of fucking maple syrup a day. You know, <laughs> for like literally, and you know, and then I was like, I treated myself to a slim fast every three days. You know, I mean it was just it Wow. I was so worn out, I was so beat up, I felt so awful at the end of the four months because of what I had to do to hit the fifteen percent marker in that last four weeks. That when we got out of the trade show, I just I needed. I just started actually actively getting back onto the diet only a couple weeks ago, and I didn't go totally off the wagon uh, those two months. I, I think both Nimish and Abe both gained some weight right after the deadline. Okay, I didn't gain any weight, um, but I didn't keep charging because I just simply couldn't. I felt terrible. Right now, I'm actually I'm feeling pretty good at the moment. But, no, I'm, I'm not – I mean, I lost 60 pounds in four months. I'll be lucky if I lose 15 or 20 this go-around. Okay. You know, it's just the way it's going to be. And if that puts me in a dress and a wig and lipstick, then guess what? I'm wearing a, I'm wearing a wig <laughs> and lipstick. And I, you know, And the, the thing is, you know, I've been thinking about this. I can't pull off RuPaul. <laughs> so if I lose, I think I'm going the, the Mimi route from Drew Carey. I think that's the way I'm going to go because there's no way I'm pulling off fat sexy. That don't happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't care what dress I buy. Or I wear. It ain't, it ain't going to happen.
3: So, oh yeah. You know, it's just oh.
2: this little fun of, you know, no, fun.
3: that's, that's fun. No, that's good.
0: Um, this is actually kind of a going back a little bit inter- interesting question from Tanner. Um, I'm going to put on the screen here and I, I'm just curious a little bit too, but Tanner says, do you have any concern about reputation blowback from self-styled purists over a sweet tip?
2: Again, it isn't sweet tip. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how to prove a negative. All I can do is say it, you know what I mean? But yeah. ultimately I don't know, who, who out there is the judge and jury?
0: Well, uh, Consumer.
2: Why, why, why would I be worried about what anybody thinks? Yeah. I mean, honestly. I mean, I think, you know, look. I try to stay very grounded. And I try to stay as a realist. But honestly, there's very few people in this business that have done what I have done at so many different levels, for so many different years, so many times successfully. I mean, what? I'm going to worry about what, who? No offense to you, Tanner, but do I really care what you think? You know what I mean? I mean, my whole career has been built on doing what I think is right. Yeah. Doing things my way. That's just all there is to it. I, I make what I like. I put it in a box. Consumers... Get to decide whether they like it or they don't like it yeah you know it's just that simple no am i worried about my reputation hell no
0: yeah and in the in the end i think most consumers just want that kind of attitude anyway they want they want just genuine products made by people who actually give a crap who are actually you know paying a role or playing a role in in uh create creating that product, you know, you're, you're not just, you know, you're, you're not just a brand manager, you know, you're the guy you, you know, you, and, and you've, you've got your name on it. You've got your reputation on it, but like you said, your reputation isn't beholden to the whims of, uh, well, uh a, a, consumers,
2: uh, bloggers, magazines, some yeah. other company. I mean, there's only one person that has to be happy and that's me. Period. I make stuff, I put it out there, I do the best that I can. I always try to do my utmost. I always try to make something unique, different, super high quality. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, and honestly, look, can somebody tell me what company out there, how many companies out there have cigars that burn the way mine burn, draw the way mine draw, are as consistent the way mine are consistent, year in, year out. I don't have any dogs in the portfolio at all. Not a single one. You know, now I'll admit not every cigar is for everybody. Right. Las Dias, that's a reach. If you don't like a heavy nicotine bomb, that's a terrible cigar. If you don't like something that's kind of milder and softer and smoother and doesn't give you a super amount of pepper and bite and this and that, Brulee is a terrible cigar. But it's still, I mean, I'm looking at you guys smoke them. They look like they are they're performing the way they're supposed to perform. You know, it's just a question of do you like it or you don't like it. And the thing is, with all of my blends, they're all very distinctly different and unique. Yeah. So that they provide a totally different smoking experience. The only exception to that is Miki Rita and Umbagog have a lot of similarities between them. But other than that, all the other ones are just, they're really just totally different. There isn't like a set pattern style of, well, this is what he makes. Whereas, you know, hey, when I buy a Pepin cigar, I know it's going to be spicy and peppery. Ninety-five mm-hmm. percent of what comes out of Pepin's factory, I know when I get most cigars from Roma Craft, they're going to be robust. They're going to be mad back. Oh, Yeah, you got some intemperance in there. You got the the Fiorella and the Wanderlust, particularly the first release and the in the in the lighter wrappers, a little smoother. But for the most part, I think we could all agree that Roma Craft makes that robust rustic stronger fuller bodied experience you know what i mean that's what they're known for that's what they're very yeah. good at. that's what they make i think my cigars there's a very wide spectrum from top to bottom and i do that intentionally because i don't want to be competing against myself when i make a new brand i mean yes the guys that follow me and the guys that are like really into cigars they're gonna probably try it because it's from me but ultimately, I always look at it as this is for a particular smoking experience. Now, I happen to be somebody that still smokes across the experience. But there's a lot of people that are just kind of locked into their own style of what they enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But why would I want to just make one thing over and over again with a new brand name on it that's so summer? I mean, I think there's some companies that if you took the bands off and you put them on the table and you switched them around, I think you'd be very hard pressed as a consumer to identify which one is which one. Yeah. You know what I mean? So for me, I always want to offer the consumer something different, something unique, something that there's a reason why they should add it to their humidor, something that might grab a consumer who never smoked any of my cigars, says, you know what, that that Todos Las Dias and that, you know, Muestra Nakatama, that ain't for me, but man. I really like this brulee. The brulee is really good. You know, it, yeah. it it's me. And so I, I always try to have that. Uh, I, I'm always, I'm trying to make a range of products to try to satisfy a wide range of needs and, you know, experience wants for the consumer.
0: Yeah. Um. So one of the things that I've been um doing a lot lately, and this is kind of shifting to food, but it's still cigar related is um you know i've i've kind of grown tired of the you know the the prepackaged um things and learning as much as i can uh about you know grinding uh making my own burgers at home okay grinding the meat myself you know making my own blends of of different types of meat for for the right kind of consistency and flavor and all that stuff and it got me thinking a little bit about you know cigars as well so so like for um, for meats when um, you know, you're putting together different cuts of beef for a burger patty, you've got short rib for fattiness and richness, and you've got um, you've got Chuck for a little bit of minerality and a little bit of depth. And then you've got like uh, sirloin for texture and a little bit of chewiness. Mm-hmm. And if, if you take that same sort of analogy and you put it into, you know, choosing tobaccos and and putting together let's say um uh i mean you choose choose one of your blends if if you want to and just w- how do you go about you know starting with a blank canvas and saying okay this is the kind of cigar i want to blend and here's the chuck and here's the short rib and that kind of thing how do you how do you go about that process
2: um all right. there's basically like three primary ways that blends get created um the first way is you have a particular tobacco that for whatever reason is in your viewpoint extra special or unique and you want to develop a blend that's going to highlight or focus on that particular ingredient like uh like they did with florida sungro you know what i mean um or you have and a lot of times the wrapper is kind of the special ingredient but sometimes you know like I have a blend that has Comstock in it um, that uh, is about to be released. And I don't know of anybody that's currently using Comstock in any other in any other products. And it was just something that, hey, I want to make something around Comstock. The second way is you have a kind of a genre in your mind, like I did with Silver Mesa Brulee. I want to make something that's, you know, mild to medium, softer, easier on the palate you know, so I had a kind of a, a blend concept, a genre that I was targeting for. Uh, the third way, which oddly enough is the way that most blends get made today is the marketing weenies in the States say, wow, brand X is selling really well. We need to come up with something to compete against brand X. Yeah, so Make something that is in that pocket to, uh, to make it like that. And those tend to be the three primary ways that blends get made. Um, you know, for me, uh, Brulee was made because I wanted to make a genre, but it ultimately ended up being commercially released because I wanted to really fill in the hole number three. It was just kind of a hole in my portfolio. And you know, I have the Nicaraguan Puro that's a nicotine bomb with Tollos. I have that dark, earthy, inherently sweet broadleaf and the Miquirina and the Umbagog. I have my elegant, balanced, complex thing and Sober Mesa. I've got my flagship and Sin. So I, I didn't have anything to fill that mild, medium, blonde cigar. So yeah. that's why it gets done. Now, as far as the actual blending process goes, you know, 20 plus years ago it was me kind of throwing darts at a board you know it was kind of like put a with B, put b with c put c with a put a b and d together it was just keep smoking see what you like see what you don't like it's a very ad hoc way of going about it um over the years i've come to learn like you were describing the meats that certain tobaccos give me certain characteristics So they kind of have a baseline as to what these particular tobaccos do and do not do when you smoke them individually and when you pair them with other materials. And the other thing that really gets lost in this whole blending equation is it's not just about flavor and aroma and strength. Um, Those are components of a cigar. You only get those things the way you intend them to be if the cigar burns correctly, if it's constructed properly, if you can get the materials of the right texture to give you the draw that you actually want. So you not only have to think about, hey, I like the way this tastes, I like the way this smells, I like the way this, but you also have to think about how does it physically function in a cigar how does it work with the other tobaccos you're putting in that cigar because if that cigar ultimately doesn't burn even that cigar ultimately will never taste the way you intended it because when it's burning uneven you're getting the ingredients unevenly yeah you're getting more of x and less of y so understanding the mechanics of how that tobacco works and how it plays with the other tobaccos is a critical component to ultimately making a blend successful uh i'll tell you one that i personally considered a failure uh i remember camacho used to have one called triple maduro they may still but i I just remember the early release it was all maduro tobaccos it was super full it had great taste to it but literally you had to light that cigar like 30 times to smoke it yeah wouldn't burn
0: combustion issues
2: terrible combustion issues it was it was painful to smoke so even though man that that 32 seconds, it was lit. It tasted great. Who cared? Yeah. Because it was just such a hassle to smoke it. So I I think a lot of people, they don't really have any comprehension of that, nor do they have any comprehension of how slightly different bunching techniques work better for certain tobaccos and how you can incorporate the right technique with the right tobacco will actually give you a better result if you do it this way for this cigar and that way for that cigar. Yeah. So I kind of over the last, you know, couple decades, you kind of get a catalog of experiences that you that you have reference points. You kind of have like known entities. You know what I mean? You know, I, I, I know what Himalaya pink salt tastes like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Compared to something else. So what happens now is when I make a blend, I have a I almost call it German approach. It's very unsexy, very unromantic. I have something in mind. I will typically make four, maybe five core blends. I will do those myself. Look, the scars aren't pretty, but I'll make them myself. And I'll try to decide which of the four paths do I want to go down. You know, I'm just using my baseline knowledge. I know that I can make a smokable cigar in an afternoon at this point. I mean, to make a cigar that just you could put it in a box and sell it, it's not a big deal. So I can whip something like that up very quickly. And that's what I do. I whip up something really quick that kind of points the direction I want. I just go through those four cores and or four initial bases. And I like, which one has the most potential? And then I ignore the other three. And then I take the one and I just start drilling down and doing tweaks and refinements until I get it to the point that, I can't make it any better. And then I just decide, is it good enough? Yeah. Is it where I want it to be? And if it isn't, I just go all the way back to the beginning and I start over again. So I'm always working kind of like on this funnel principle. Always. I start here and I'm always just narrowing, 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 narrowing. And when I get to that bottom point, if I'm not happy, I just go all the way back up here. Yeah. And I funnel. It sounds like that takes longer. And occasionally it does, but typically it doesn't. And also, it takes out all of the randomness. The oh, guess what? I got lucky and I made something that tasted good because I put X, Y, and Z together. Wow, it tastes amazing! You yeah. know what I mean? It gets rid of that because if you're relying on just getting lucky, you're gonna end up. Uh, you're gonna end up making a few great cigars along the way, but for the most part, you're gonna just make a lot of eh, cigars along the way. Is what's ultimately gonna happen, and yeah. it ends up being a big waste of time. So I have this very systematic approach to doing it. And I remember it was kind of funny because I was at one of the factories and I was developing the Sober Mesa blend at the same time. An other uh, brand owner was developing a blend. And the factory people, at first they were kind of like, they were looking at me with two heads. And then they were kind of like, "Wow, you know, this was so much quicker. This was so much faster. It made yeah. so much more sense to go this way." And uh, so it's just kind of the, the way I have come to do it. But it is it it, it isn't nearly as romantic as people think. It's well, a, there's a, it's a very engineering technical kind of approach.
0: Well, I mean, sometimes it has to be. You know the the romance the the romance comes after. After the hard work is done, um, but there's a couple questions on the um, that people have brought up, and it's mm-hmm. interesting because it's actually something that that I highlighted from uh, this article that you wrote for Cigar Magazine uh, about 13 years ago. And the question is about Comstock Tobacco, and I just want to read this section and I highlighted really quick. It says. Um, with the exception of very small plants, or sorry, with the exception of very small plots of Wisconsin Comstock and some broadleaf grown in Pennsylvania, all of the black tobacco cultivated in the United States today are grown within the Connecticut River Valley in northern Connecticut and southern Massachusetts. Now, is is Comstock a product that's grown in the soils of Wisconsin, or is that just the name of the leaf, of the varietal, varietal itself?
2: Well, there's actually, there's like two variations of Comstock. There's a Wisconsin Comstock. And there's a Spanish Comstock, okay, which are grown in that. They were grown in that Midwest Northern region, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. It was uh, it was kind of a local tobacco, and you can tell how old that article is because at that time very few people were using Pennsylvania seed leaf. Now many of us use Pennsylvania seed leaf. Uh, when that article was written, nobody was growing. Uh, filler tobacco in Florida as Jeff Borshowitz is now doing with his Florida sun grown, you know? So, uh, I mean, that article is out of date, but to my knowledge, there aren't a lot of people that are, uh, are utilizing Comstock. Um, there will be because uh, that's the way these things work in our business. As, as soon as one person does something successfully, well, I hope it's successful. Who knows? <laughs> um, but uh, you you end up getting a lot of people that latch on, and again, you're trying to look. We take dried weeds and we roll them in a tube. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: Everything yeah. in the end is brown and round. Yeah, <laughs> There's like very little. You know, to the average person, uh, one cigar is the same as another cigar is the same as the other cigar. And when I say that, I don't just mean to the guy that don't smoke cigars. I'm talking about people that do smoke cigars. Yeah. You know what I mean? They just, they're just they not into it that way. Right. Um, so you as a manufacturer, particularly as a small one, you, you have to do something more. You know, you have to give them something that they're not going to get. And the thing is, the truth is, the large companies, the big ones, the generals, the altiduses, the swishers, They have the capacity to make way better cigars than I make. They do. They have the tobacco. It all comes down to what inventories of tobacco do you have? Because the more you have, the more you have to pull from, the more high, super high quality. Because there's no such thing as great tobacco. In every crop, there's great, there's good, there's decent, there's okay, there's meh, there's terrible. You're, You're basically just trying to find the best out of any crop, you know, So when you're a large company with huge inventories and stockpiles, you have more of those special things there. The problem for them, though, is they're trying to make something with very wide mass appeal. And if they were to make a brand and it was only to do $800,000 in sales in the first year or even, you know, they would be like, this was an absolute utter failure where I'd be like, wow, I'm doing cartwheels. You know what I mean? So it's easier for the smaller guy to do those things because it's so much uh, you don't have the same obligations to the financial ledger sheet that you do in the large companies. Yeah. So and that's one of the reasons why you get some more interesting products from some of the smaller manufacturers. They and, may, uh, how
1: they, many cigars are you rolling a year?
2: Gosh, you know, you think that would be an easy question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really pay attention. I'll tell you in a minute. Hold on a second.
0: Well, while, while you're pulling that number up, um, uh, DJ beat me to this question. And I'm kind of curious, and he is too. What What's the flavor profile of Comstock? What are the characteristics that made made you want to use it in a blend?
2: Um, the particular strain I chose was actually has to do more with the uh, the aroma and the retrohale properties of it. Okay. Mm. So it's a very peculiar blend. I, I'm using it in this like one-off thing that I that I made. It's called Donderma. Dharma. So, Oh,
0: okay. So that's in the Dondurma blend. Okay.
2: Yeah. That's in the Don Dharma. So let's take a quick look at this. Where am I at right now?
1: And then, uh, another question while you're pulling that up too, if you can multitask, yeah, can. Um, spreadsheets is, um, any store exclusives or special run cigars upcoming similar to what you did with the red meat lover?
2: Well, we have red meat lovers. It's going to be, uh, A second round of red meat lovers is going to be launched sometime right around Thanksgiving. Nice. We just had the firecrackers go to the redo of the firecrackers go to two guys, but I actually talked to Dave yesterday. He says he's a hundred percent sold out, but it's a lie. Um, I think he kept (laughs) back like boxes to just use internally, um, whether it be in his stores or, uh, I, like, I think it's something like if you buy X, you get Y kind of deal. Um, but for all practical, that's sold out. And then I have this little tiny Dandarma project, which is at uh, Secreto. And I think that's – oh, and then I got that famous – I have a lot of specialty projects. And then I have the famous 80th, which uh, they literally just took a receipt of uh, – uh, they took receipt of it this week. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I think right now – I mean, I don't know the exact number, but given what we've made and where the plan is, I'm probably going to be somewhere, somewhere around probably 685 to 740 thousand cigars um, over the course of 2019. So I'm not quite at a million units. I mean, look, we're still a relative. I mean, it's good.
1: Yeah, but yeah,
2: but it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's, it ain't going to make me rich. I can tell you that. I mean, but you're doing it right. I'm trying to do it right. I mean I'm doing it my way. It goes back to the thing with the sweet tip. It's like I'm doing what I do, you know. So like that that's kind of where I am and you know, and ultimately this is where things are a little different, you know. You know, when I was a, when I was with JR, you had an established business and you had benchmarks to meet. And when I was at Drew Estate, we were very sales focused and we were very Uh, grabbing market share focus it was you know it was always uh, a prime concern for the company Um, and I don't have either of those uh, criteria for the new company so I'm very happy I mean this year we're sitting we're sitting probably close to 100% up on the year and that's fantastic Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time it doesn't really matter in the end I, I just want to I want to make good cigars and I want to grow the brand and I want to do it right and I don't want to uh, I don't want it to become a burden financially yeah I, I just uh, and, and it's not like I'm growing it to sell it and it's not like I have shareholders and I have no investors and I have no debt I mean the only debt we literally have is the 30-day turn on the Amex card you know mm. what I mean That's it. I mean, there's just nothing. I mean, you know, I pay for the tobacco with real money. I pay for the cigars with real money, you know, everything I have. I have have no, I mean, we don't even lease equipment. We, we, we own everything. Yeah. 100% across the board. And, you know, and probably if I was like trying to rapidly expand the business, not the best approach. Honestly, I think if I poured a million dollars into the company, whether it be my money or an investor or a bank's money, I think I could get the company to 10 million in sales probably within just a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I, at I, what cost? Yeah. For what purpose? Right. Yep. You know, that that's the thing for what purpose?
1: Yeah. To grow for growth sake is not a good.
2: Yeah. Difference. it just I look and it's like, what? Well, and honestly, I'm never going to make as much money as I made on an annual basis at Drew Estate. Yeah. You know, the chances of me getting back to that salary level doing this is almost impossible. You know, maybe who knows? But I mean, it's just it's just not the same. I don't have the same aspirations. Yeah, as I had. You know, you know, even even just ten years ago, I, I feel very different about it.
1: Um, another great question from a uh, local guy we call Big Bear wants to know. Um, how did the eating grasshoppers at events start?
2: Yeah. I hate cigar events. They're so <laughs> <laughs> That whole, whole shtick of standing in a store <laughs> behind a table every guy that comes up, you got to explain all seven different products on the table. You're like, Oh, and then you got to like try to talk them into buying something. And Hey, guess what? You get a, you get a cheap Chinese knife or you get a, backpack <laughs> and a hat. And here's this. The whole thing is just so, I hate it so much that I just started saying, how can I make this, just even mildly entertaining for me? Love it. <laughs> you know what? Getting people to eat big bucks, you know? That's kind of entertaining. I've never had one. I'm not putting one of those things in my mouth. Be a Madagascar kissing cockroach. You know, that's like it's just good fun. You know, so you know whether it comes to hey, you're gonna need a Carolina Reaper pepper. Hey, you're gonna pet a boa. You're gonna kiss a fish. Whatever, it doesn't even matter. Just anything to break up the monotony. Of in fact, I pretty much. I've been doing quite a few of those events because retailers really want you to do them to help mm-hmm. their ring. Yep, I think I'm pretty much done with it. I really am. I really, to me, something more than just "Hey, here's a deal" is mm-hmm. what makes an event. Just oh, there's a deal. Well, so what? Why, why do I need there for you to do a deal? You know what I mean? You can. I'll send you the free cigars. I'll send you the damn soccer squash statues. You know. Why, why am I going to travel halfway across the country, step a 300-pound fat ass up all day, do <laughs> the same thing 8 million times over? And the other thing, too, for me is I think you would find, it when you get to the very top principle levels of most of these companies, sales are what sales are. You know, the sales guys are into it. Some VP guys are, marketing guys are into it. I, want, I don't get any sort of thrill when somebody buys something. When somebody buys something, my thought is: I really hope they like it. I hope they enjoy it. I hope yeah. be good. I hope they end up being satisfied with their purchase. But I don't get that little uh, hit of endorphins because, oh well, that guy was going to buy that, but I talked him into buying this, or hey, he was going to buy one, but I managed to convince him to buy five. You know what I mean? I I don't get any sort of uh, bump out of it personally. I'm very appreciative, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely yeah. mm-hmm. critical, it's essential to the company. I'm very thankful for the support. So I don't want people to think, oh, well, I just don't care. But I'm just saying, I don't get any thrill out of the activity of sales. Yeah. You know, what I care about is what's the bottom line? Can I operate the company profitably? Can I pay everybody's wages? Can I buy the tobacco I need? Can I make the product consistently? Are customers happy with the product? Will they recommend it to their friends? You know, so it's just the sale, the whole sales event thing. Yeah, it so sucks. It really does.
3: Well, and you're
0: you're more into the you know you're you're more into the the creativity part of it and the the community part of it than the than the the numbers piece. You when when somebody buys, you know, when you're in an event with people and somebody goes up to the register with a couple of boxes and buys those. You don't see the dollar signs. You just think to yourself, man, I hope that guy likes it. I hope he recommends it to his friends. Right. And what the hell am I doing with that blend? Everybody, um,
2: everybody works hard for their money. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're willingly giving it to you. Yeah. Okay. And so you want them to be satisfied with their purchase. You want them to have a good experience. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not one of those. Oh, wow. I got that guy. <laughs> oh, Bring you know what I mean? Yeah. It just doesn't do anything. It it just whereas, you know, like the really good cigar salesmen, they do. They get a little bit of a they get a little bit of a boost, a little bit of a high from you know making the register ring from those transactions. For me, the criteria is hey, was the retailer satisfied?
3: Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know, what is what is their normal Tuesday? If their normal Tuesday is, you know, twelve hundred dollars. And I managed to be in their store and it ended up being a $4,500 day for that guy. Uh, If they're happy, I'm happy. Because I look at events as, A, it's a way for me to support the retailer. B, it's a way for me to have an opportunity to interact with their staff. Because ultimately, the staff is way more critical than most of the owners of these shops. You know, the guys that are actually on the front line day in, day out. Consumer comes and says, hey, I like strong Maduro cigars well, what are the three, four, five brands they suggest? Are you one of those three, four, five brands when they're making those suggestions? Yeah. So spending time with the staff and even though you're not directly educating them, they're hearing what you're saying. They're able to ask you questions that better prepares them to be able to you know, serve their customers better. So that's important to me when it comes to events. And the other thing too is I do actually enjoy the individual uh, interactions with consumers. I think anybody that sees me in social media, uh, my social media, the way I do it is different than the way most people do it. There's a few of us, but there's very few of us. I I actively really engage in conversations. I like the back and forth. I like the discussion. You know, I I am curious, even though I'm going to ultimately do what I think is right, I am still curious about what other people think. And I'm even more curious about not what they think, but why they think that, yeah. you know, I, I find that very interesting and look and at my core, I'm still a cigar geek. I mean, I still, I buy other cigars. I'm interested when certain products are coming out. I look forward to trying them, you know, so that part I enjoy, but the, but the, the ring, the register part, it's my least favorite part for me. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um, one other question that I had about, Um, And I, this is a question I've wanted to ask somebody for a long time. And I'm, I'm glad I'm able to ask you because I hear these terms floated around on, on different, maybe it'll be different advertisements for certain cigar brands, or I'll hear certain people, you know, uh, in, in interviews with, uh, other cigar shows and blogs and things like that. And I've always kind of wanted to get down to the nitty gritty because it's, we know and that there's a lot of bullshit you know, in, in the cigar industry. And one of the things that I've always wanted to kind of get down to the, the, the bare truth of is about there's this term authentic or original Corojo yeah. and what there's a lot of, you know, like I said, there's a lot of bullshit floating around about it. What, what, what does that really mean? If a, if a blender or a brand person says, Oh, this is real blah 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 Corojo. What is what does that really mean and does it in in the end, does it does it how does it affect the way a cigar smokes and whether or not it's it's a it's a quality leaf in that cigar.
2: Well first off it has nothing to do with whether it's a quality leaf.
0: Okay.
2: I mean original Corojo is not necessarily better than hybridized Corojo. Okay. You know so that that's to me that's nothing um and look i don't know is there really look i don't want to step on anybody else's marketing stuff again it goes back to that it's brown and round it's all the same so you're trying to come up with something yeah provides a simple hook a story that gets the consumer to try the product to decide whether they like it or they don't like it yeah but i mean look i can tell you x but honestly who out there can tear a cigar apart and actually tell whether I'm telling the truth or not telling the truth. Right. There's so few people that can actually even do that. So you're getting told something and you're hoping it's true, but ultimately there's no way for you to know whether it's true or not. The only thing that you know is true or not true is did it burn well? Did it draw well? Is it consistent? Do I like it? Do I not like it? you know what's what what the previous brands from that guy were like what the future brands are have been like or the newer brands i mean these are things that you everybody is a master at judging we're all we're all our number one critic number one judge nobody can tell me what i want to put in my mouth period you know what i mean so that's where it comes to but you're trying to find a way to make it stand out so i know you know like the roa family uh is one that was one of the first that was growing you know that stock Cuban Corojo seed but i honestly don't know i mean is it the same seed from the early 20s you know in cuba when they developed the corojo strain how am i supposed to know that i i honestly don't know it you know what i mean uh does their leaf look a little different is the texture a little different yeah there's definitely a difference in that tobacco, when I look at that tobacco from Hamistrand that's grown by the Aroas compared to other Corojos grown elsewhere, is it better? Well, that's a matter of just personal uh, opinion as to whether you think it's better, or you don't think it's better. Uh, but the whole thing of you know what's authentic, what's not authentic, I think that's lost in the ether, and it's just it's so complex now because science has gotten so advanced even though we're not, even though we're naturally still hybridizing tobacco seeds, we're not genetically modifying them. We are, I mean, even the simple act of choosing which plants you're going to use as your seed lot plants makes a difference into what that tobacco ultimately will become over multiple plantings. So I, I don't know that, Anything can be really original because it's always constantly in a state of flux, right? Yeah. Um. So I, I personally, I don't really put a lot of stock in those things, to be honest. With you.
0: Now, when they when they grow a crop, do they choose us just a select group of the plants to to uh, to yeah. use for seeds?
2: There's typically two ways that you go about that. Um, the original traditional approach was you're growing the crop and then you will find in the field the plants that are the healthiest. They're showing you the characteristics that you like the best as far as size, shape, and disease resistance. And you will end up selecting those to bag those out to be your seed collecting plants, where you're going to collect your seeds from. And almost, not always, but more times than not, it tends to be at the lowest lying point in a field. Um, In any field, there's always a point in it that's lower. Because I mean, these fields are, I mean, some of them are pretty unlevel. You want to try to make them as level as possible, but you never are. So what ends up happening is the plants that are at the lowest point in a field typically end up getting the most nourishment because that's just where everything erodes to. It ends up being the you know, the cupping point where everything over time, rain falls in there. So when you're doing it that way, um, it's almost always at one of the lower spots in the field that you're going to choose your seed plants from. The other approach is you actually grow a specific seed lot. And normally that seed lot is grown very close to the front of the farm, close to the barn. uh, And the reason why is because the guy who's responsible for those plants is normally the one that's the most senior guy at the farm. And he just doesn't want to walk his ass all the way out to wherever <laughs> to tend those plants. So what they'll do is they will cultivate a small plot close to the front or in a convenient location. that's easy to get to by truck and they will specifically grow the plants and tend them better than any of the other plants with the intention of, okay, these are where I'm going to pull my seeds from this season. So those seem to be the two typical ways, um, seeds are uh, are grown or plants are grown for the purpose of extracting seed for the following year okay um
0: and one other question i mean i've got a thousand other ones but one that was kind of uh, important to me and related to one of your products is related to um, mexican san andreas tobacco as far as mm-hmm. i know that there's one or one or two as, as far as i know particular growing locations in mexico but uh, as far as the actual the, the actual plant, the actual varietal of tobacco that's grown there, is it a particular type that was always native to that area, or was it brought in over time?
2: Well, there's both. Well, now you have three tobaccos. You have three, yeah. I mean, okay. San Andreas Negra is one of the base Criollos. So mm-hmm. it's one of the original tobaccos that was cultivated by the indigenous people. You know centuries ago and because of the separation of time and distance over time even if you're not choosing which plants to mate you know by swabbing them those plants are going to get mated uh just naturally and the other thing too is you got to remember tobacco has both sexes so it's self-propagating um so what ends up happening is over time tobaccos will develop kind of into their own tobaccos in a given region left to be grown year after year, self-hybridizing, and it'll become kind of their own strain. So what you have is you have five basic Criollos. You have the, the Bahias, the matas, the mata Norte, Mata Sul, Este, you know, are all Brazilian. You have San Andres Negro. You have the Havanese strains that are in the Caribbean and Cuba. You have the Broadleaf strains, which are you know, Pennsylvania and North. Comstock fits into that. PB Barber fits into that. Penn Seedleaf fits into that. And then you also have Indonesian um, tobacco. And that's probably the early, that's the youngest of the Criollos because those were seeds that were transmitted to uh, the Far East, courtesy of Dutch traders in the late 1600s, early 1700s. But then they were isolated by time and distance for a few centuries. And they kind of developed into their own strains. And we're talking about the like bazooki and, and stuff like that, TBNs and whatnot. Um, so, what you have in Mexico is the original, you know, Criollo of Mexico was San Andres Negro. Um, but what ended up happening was the Dutch ended up, they were really big in Indonesia but at one point they got booted out of the country and they went back to Mexico and they started growing Sumatran in Mexico also. So you have strains of Sumatran that are Mexican Sumatra grown in Mexico. You have the San Andres Negro. And now you have farmers like uh, like the Terrence or uh, Carrion uh, that actually grow a few uh, varieties of uh, Cuban strains, the Havanese strains in Mexico too. But the negra is the criollo of of Mexico.
0: Okay. And for the um, for your sin compromiso, which uh, I believe you're smoking right now, um, there was a um, there was a a, a different process uh, for the cultivation of the leaf right. that that is used for the wrapper for the sin compromiso. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. The um, so the tobacco that's used on sincompromiso is not it's a hybridized san andreas negro but it's not anything that i would consider to be particularly unique outside of the individual farmer that grows it but what i wanted to do is i had read this crazy article a long time ago about these japanese melons called royal crown musk melons and these these japanese they you know it's it's so japanese they They grow these melons, and in the end, they cost like $200 a piece for one musk melon. What they do is they have this vine that would typically support 18 to 22 melons. They pull all the blossoms off the vine. They only leave two blossoms. They let two melons start. They decide which of the two melons they think is the one they like the most. They pluck the other melon, and they chuck it. And Then the whole vine, about 100 square feet of soil and one vine that would normally support 22 melons, now is dedicated to just growing one melon. And then they do this very Japanese thing, and they sing to it and rub it. And who the <laughs> hell knows what else? They're, they're <laughs> Japanese. I mean, they're, See they're, the food. they're just a little strange, these people. <laughs> they, and the way they do this melon is kind of strange too. Um, but in the end, what ends up happening is they get this melon that just – it's sweeter. It's more buttery. It's more fleshy. It's more juicy. It's really – it's genuinely fantastic. Now, is it worth $200? No, it's not worth $200. It's a melon, for God's sake. <laughs> Is there a difference? There's definitely a difference. And it's very basic principles. It's, hey, you have, a, you have a, a root system and a vine system that's designed to support 22 pieces of fruit. And now you're dedicating all that energy to just one fruit. You know what I mean? And it's no different than the guys, the way they grow pot these days. You know what I mean? They, 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 they trim so much and they focus on trying to concentrate all the energy into just much fewer, higher quality buds. Yeah. Is what trying to do. And it's the same concept on this melon. And it was something that I'm like, you know, why wouldn't that work with tobacco? Why not? I mean, it's basic anything. You do this with any plant. You know, if you focus on just one flower versus trying to make a bush of flowers, you can dedicate everything to that flower. So we grew this small little pilot where what we do is we strip off the bottom 50% of the plant before it even develops. So just as the leaves begin to bud, they get to be about two, three inches. We pull them off. And by doing that, we're throwing away the bottom half of the plant before it even becomes usable tobacco. And you end up with two things. A, you end up basically throwing away about 70% of the crop, 70 to 75 by getting rid of the bottom half, because those leaves would have been bigger and hence they would have been heavier and tobacco farmers make their money on the per pound per acre kind of concept Mm -hmm. so it doesn't make any commercial reason why you would ever do this because you're really throwing away 75 percent of the tobacco before you've even grown it and you're dedicating the same amount of land you're dedicating the same amount of fertilizer the same amount of land prep to it and you're actually dedicating more labor because now as soon as you start pulling those leaves off young you now get these suckers, and we always get suckers when we prime and when we debud, but you get an unbelievable amount of suckers when you start pulling those leaves off young like that. So you end up actually spending more time tending that tobacco to, in the end, only make 25 to 30% of the weight that the similar crop would give you, Um but the concept was that, hey, all the energy is going to go to these leaves. And these leaves are going to be a little sweeter, a little richer, a little this, a little more that. that. Um, so we grew it. And I kind of like the way the tobacco turned out. So then we grew a, a real crop, and not a large crop, a small crop. And we took it. We fermented it. And you're, like, you're always – one of the things I'm always worried about is you tend to buy into your own bullshit, it's just human nature. Yeah. So ultimately, what ended up making the deciding factor whether I thought this, and I call it Cultivo Tanto, which is just my funny name for foolish cultivation because it doesn't make any sense. Because I'm paying the guy not just 100% for 25% of the tobacco, I'm paying him 115% because there's more labor for 25% of the tobacco. I had the factory, okay, make me 50 toros using the San Andres Negro from the very same farm, very safe seed, cultivated the normal way. Make me 50 cigars using the Cultivo Tonto crop, and let me see what I think. And don't tell me which group is which group. I don't want to know. And I could tell. In fact, they didn't even put them in groups. I actually had to mix them up, and they broke them into 10. They labeled them 1 through 10. So we're like 5 and 5, 5 and 5, okay? And I was able to tell 100% of the time which ones were the Tontos and which ones were the normals, and once I was there, I was like, okay, I can tell the difference 100 percent of the time, and that's what made me say, okay, let's take the leap of faith and let's go ahead and invest the money in doing this cultivo tanto.
3: Yeah, and,
2: and that's what I ultimately used for sin compromiso, and I love the way the tobacco turned out for it. Um, you know, and it's uh, and it's look, it's a little bit of a hook. It's something that like, I'm, I'm giving us look. Cins are they're, they're, they're an ultra premium cigar they're 15 to $20 right. and as a consumer when you spend 15 to 20 I think you deserve something a little more than the run of the mill cigar you know what I mean so this is a way I could do something that makes it in my opinion not run of the mill beyond the fact that it's a really great cigar but it's just that little extra bit of something right? That, to just give it a little bit more and, uh, I'm really pleased with the results of the product. and It seems, I mean, if sales are to be believed, it seems that consumers are really pleased with the product too, because we've never, since its introduction was like, what, a, over a year ago, uh, we've never caught up.
0: Yeah. You've sold out every production run.
2: Yeah. Well, we're, it's not that we're selling out of every production. We're making them every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. All of my products are made every day. Okay. The only ones that aren't are the muestras, okay, and that's only in the beginning, in the first year's releases of muestras. Um, after that, like exclusivos and uh, and uh nakatamales, those are made on a continual, ongoing basis. Um, unicorns are only made a thousand a year, so that one's a limited. And then these projects, like the famous 80th and the Don Dharma and the Red Meat Lovers, but everything else, it's a constant production item. Um, I'm a big believer in steady state production. I, I think you make the very best cigars when you make the same cigar, same blend in the same size every single day with the same pair gives you much more consistency than this constant, oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. So I, I have to go on the hook. So like if I decide I need more sober Mesa El Americanos, I have to decide that I need about 200 more boxes a month. Because for me to start a new pair making El Americanos, they're going to produce about 200 boxes a month, that pair. yeah, I have to absorb the risk of 200 boxes a month when I increase my inventory levels you know, because of the way I like to produce cigars. So I don't, I don't make a lot of – I know batch production sounds sexy, and it's something that we use as a marketing hook in our business. But the reality is those cigars are the worst. When you start making cigars in the beginning, that first three to four weeks, those cigars are nowhere near as good of a quality as they will be if those so, same pairs are making the same cigars continuously three months later. Right. It's just It's just the nature of the beast. You're yeah. getting just better, more consistently, better constructed. You lose far less of them in quality control. There's far less rejection. So
0: I, well yeah it makes sense because the pairs you know they build over time they build muscle memory they build memory you know uh, making sure that they're they're placing everything just just the right way and 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 the rhythm of getting yeah. that
2: it's the rhythm that's so key so for example as an American we think man I don't want to make the exact same blend every day in the same size that sounds so boring I'm going to tell you for a fact of the torcedors in any factory, that's exactly what they want to do. They get paid per unit that passes quality control. Yeah. You're going to be dinking around. Oh, today I make a Lonsdale. Tomorrow I make a torpedo. Oh, I make. a really strong heavy blend it's got all this really thick crunchy material in it oh i'm making this silky smooth mild blend oh i got all this little you know lightly textured material i got to worry about the bunch being too tight because i'm getting none of the texture from the thicker materials that aren't here they really they just want to come into work they want to do their job and they want to go home at the end of the day yeah they're actually happier to make the exact same thing every day out of the exact same materials every day yeah
0: for their bottom line
2: you can take the Robusto guy and make him a Toro pair. It's roughly the same ring gauge. It's roughly the same proportions on the blend. But, man, when you take that Toro guy and say, hey, I want you to make these Lonsdales, they don't like it. Now, in every factory, too, there's always those few pairs, or in a small factory, maybe one pair, that loves the variety, loves the spice of life. You know what I mean? Oh, wow, you want me to crab, you know, crab di- 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 diademus Fantastic. We get to make diademus for the next two weeks. Oh wow! I get to make lanceros, fantastic. Let me make some lanceros. But that guy is really that pair is a minority. And the other thing too is, torso doors. They don't think about when they're making cigars, like you said. It's rhythm, it's muscle memory. They just do it. Yeah. It's. I always. I always tell people the best analogy is just think about when you were learning to drive a car. Your. You know your hands were. You know, 10 and 2, and you're paying attention to the mirror. You're, you know, you're checking the line to make sure where you are in the lane. I mean, you're really focused on driving, how to drive, what to do. But you drive now, you just get in your car and you drive. You don't think about any of those things, right? It's just what you do is what you do. It's the same thing with with, with these pairs. They're just kind of on autopilot.
3: Yeah. You know?
2: So making things the same actually gives you better results in the long run.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Well, we're going to, uh, we're going to shift gears really quick, and we're going to go into uh, our weekly uh, useless facts of the week. And um, a couple of interesting ones that I uh, was able to pull up earlier today. Um, So uh, in the country of China, during uh, the span between 2011 and 2013, they used more concrete than the United States used in what period of time?
2: So, uh, I didn't understand. I'm, I'm on a trivia show. Is there a prize at the end? Of it? Yeah. Hundred thousand dollars. Can I call a friend?
0: It's just. Uh, it's. It's.
2: Right, so hit me with the question again, because I, I. So I not I answer it.
0: <laughs> in. The, in between 2011 and 2013, China used a particular amount of concrete in all their construction in the entire country for buildings and roads and infrastructure and all that. They used a particular amount of concrete and that amount of concrete was equal to or exceeded the amount of concrete the United that the United States used in. So, so that was two years. What period of time did it take the United States to use the same amount of concrete?
2: Two decades.
0: What do you say, Garrett?
1: Well, I am I would think it would have to do with the Great Wall. The what? The Great Wall? They built that a
0: long time ago, bro. I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they sure didn't use any concrete. That's a given. <laughs> but they repaired much of it. Okay. About within the last hundred but, years. But how,
0: but, but how much, you know,
1: in decades?
0: No. in in so they used, a, they used, let, let's say they use, you know, a hundred thousand yards of concrete in two part, years.
1: Yeah,
3: how
0: this. many, how much time did it take the United States to use the same amount of oh, concrete?
1: Now I'm with you. Sorry. I was multitasking, looking up, uh, getting on my page. <laughs> My bad. Um, uh, Steve, you went with two decades?
2: Yeah, I'm, just, I'm taking a crap shit. could be a century for all I know. We we, we don't build anything in America. I'm going to go 50, 50,
0: 50 years. years. All right. So um, China used more concrete in three years between 2011 and 2013 than the United States did in the entire 20th century. There
1: you go. That's yep.
0: stupid. I mean that's bonkers.
1: 3 years.
0: That's uh so there uh
2: there's uh <laughs>
0: there's a lot of people there.
2: <laughs>
0: well said. Well said.
2: Very true,
0: Um so yeah, that's uh, the useless fact of the week. And now uh my favorite segment every week is Oh, Garrett's 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 got the nub tool on this uh, sober Mesa Brulee. I mean, What's
2: weird about sober Mesa Brulee, dude. It's most Connecticut shade cigars they tend to turn bitter right around the band. Yep, and it's and Brulee is actually a cigar that I don't think it nubs as well as my other blends, but it's still very nubbable.
1: I was I was just gonna say so I'm I'm clearly getting a lot of that bitterness but it is not too much where um, I don't mind numbing it and uh, it, it's still there's still enjoyable. it's
0: not all bitterness there's still no, sweetness there there's still so there's sweetness. balance
1: yeah all right now we are ready for numero, numero de los, de los muertos.
0: muertos I keep hitting the damn spring on my mic mic stand
1: all right, guys. Uh, this week's uh, numbers um, is really fun. Um, we've got uh, we've got numbers of three fifty six and two twelve. Um, and what those numbers represent is how many people die by animal or insect deaths in states. So. Um, the state that has the most animal deaths or people die by animal or insect death is 356. The next closest state is 212.
0: And we have to name the states. Correct. Oh man, you're killing me. Um, I'm thinking of states that have a lot of insects.
2: Well, I'm gonna go Florida because you have a combination of a lot of poisonous things and a lot of stupid people. So Florida's got to be one of those states, right?
0: That's 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 got to be a good guess. Yeah.
2: I mean, doesn't everything start off a Florida man? Florida man, Florida man.
0: So <laughs> all the bad headlines start right. off, Florida man. Dot dot dot.
2: Right. Uh, Florida, <laughs> Florida man's one of my guesses.
1: Florida is one seventy one. Oh, okay. So it is close third. Um, is it
0: a southern state? Mm-hmm. Is it Texas?
1: Texas is number one.
0: Texas is a
1: big population. This, this
0: has a big population and landmass, I figure. Yep. And yeah. there's a lot of stupid people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait, wait a minute.
2: I'm going to take offense at that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's a lot of smart people in Texas, too.
1: Kevin, Kevin nails it.
0: Oh, he got both of them? He got both All of right, them. All right, I'm putting Kevin's comment on, on screen here.
1: California. So uh, Texas and California rank number one and number two.
2: So it's really a population and landmass thing is really more than anything else.
1: Right. Huh. Now, Steve, your state ranks near the very bottom. Yeah. Can you guess the number of people that die every year by animal and insect death? in New Hampshire. 4. Okay, he's going with number 4. He's going with 4. What are you uh what are you thinking?
0: Um I'm going to say uh uh I 50. Okay. 17. Oh wow. Well yeah, Steve's way
1: closer on that one.
2: And, and how many of them are by moose too? I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so moose is actually uh, a part of that statistic. It doesn't give me. Um, this is by the CDC, so it's it's official data, um, and it doesn't. This particular um, report doesn't give specifics.
2: Yeah, well, we don't have. Uh, we just don't, we don't have any poisonous snakes. We're at the very Correct. Northern range of rattlesnakes, but I've never seen a rattlesnake in New Hampshire. So or when I was in Texas, it was a continual problem. Um, and we don't—I don't think we really have. I mean, a yellow jacket, a hornet. I mean, we just—we just don't have poisonous insects, right? You know, there's just not a lot. So you're like—you're talking about getting trampled by a, a deer, and heat. you stumble onto a moose, you stumble onto a bear right. cubs. I mean, there, there's a very unique set of circumstances that has to happen to die an animal death in New Hampshire.
1: But dying by moose has got to suck.
2: But I got to tell you, I had one of my most scary, uh, one of my most scariest animal encounters was with a moose here in New Hampshire. Um, they're very big. They're yeah. huge. And the thing about moose are they look very docile, but they're also very cantankerous. Um, so a moose can be docile and sweet, and... Two seconds later, it bipolars out to just be. There's like no rhyme or reason sometimes as to why that is. Uh, Moose are actually, I think, one of the most tricky animals in the United States because they are unpredictable as to what they're going to do. And everybody, you see a moose, you think bullwinkle. You know what I mean? (laughs) Moose. And uh, not not a good plan.
0: (laughs) Did you have your close encounter with a bull or a cow?
2: I had my close encounter with a young bull. Um, It was a good size, and I was grouse hunting with Blossom, and I broke out of a really heavy uh, stretch of popple. It's a popple. How do you describe popple? Popple is like young poplar trees, Yeah, but they grow so tight that you're literally having to kind of almost machete your way through them, and then you you got thorns and thickets, and I burst through some that I was hacking my way through bird hunting, and I just ended up literally finding myself confronted with a moose, maybe 10 yards away, just staring at me because it heard me coming. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> kind of like, let me see what's coming out of the woods. And it was <laughs> And then uh, I just kind of froze. I'm like, and I stood there. I was in a little bit of a stare down with a moose for. Felt like an attorney, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was like 60 seconds before the moose. Oh. All right, I'm going to go on. But yeah, oh. moose, moose are. Moose are I, I, yeah, Moose are beautiful to see. And then I had a second incident that I almost hit a moose on one of my fishing trips to Lake Umbagog at dusk where a moose darted out in crossing the road. And I literally, I missed it by inches at
1: most. Oh. Yeah. We saw a moose uh, up in the boundary waters um, on shore and we were watching it. And he didn't like that very much. It was a big bull. And he got in the water and started coming towards us. Yeah. And uh, luckily, we were just a little faster than him in the canoe. But um, they tip people over in uh, canoes often, and um, yeah, uh, people think they're sweet, cute <laughs> animals, and they're gorgeous. But um, they'll tear you up. They are territorial, and um, they'll let you know.
2: And again, they're unpredictable. That's the problem. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: I so remember, there's yeah.
1: our uh, Numeros de los Muertos for the week.
2: 17. 17. the lowest state on that CDC list? Rhode Island?
1: Uh, so uh, five a year and Rhode Island is correct.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because Rhode Island is like the size of my
1: garage.
2: Right. And it's,
1: <laughs> and it's pretty densely populated for yeah. area.
2: Populated for most of it, right? So there's a yeah. A lot, of, a lot of open where in New Hampshire, uh, we have a population of like 1.1 million, and like one million of them live in the bottom third of the state. So
1: yeah, well, can you guess the two animals um, that are responsible for the most deaths in the U.S. Who? Top two,
2: top two animals responsible for the most. One is
1: an insect, and one is a animal, mammal.
2: Mammal. I'm going to go cow.
0: Okay. For the insect, I'm going to go with ticks.
1: Oh, wow. Ticks, have, good one. That is a good guess.
0: For the mammal, I'm going to go with uh, bear. Okay. Nope. No. Okay.
1: Uh, it is bees. Okay. All right.
2: People have the allergic reaction. To, to the yep. insect stings, so they yep. get anaphylactic shock.
1: That's right. Yeah. Right?
2: So that makes sense because there's an allergy for that.
1: And the other one was actually uh, news and surprise to me. Uh, feral dogs. What?
0: We have that many feral dogs in the U.S.?
1: Between That's uh, crazy. rabies and... Uh, oh, rabies, yeah. Uh, the other thing was... Uh, so, and these statistics come between the, the years of two thousand thirteen and seventeen. Was this report? So, oh. uh, bees and dogs.
0: Well, watch out for those bees and dogs, people. We'll get and, you. And uh,
1: Josh has the number three.
0: Oh, mosquito and horse.
1: Mosquito. Mosquito. Those yeah.
0: were good guesses, though. Mosquito yeah. and horse.
3: Really good one.
0: Um. So, uh, notable smokables for the week garrett um uh one of mine was uh the new uh, uh nat sherman timeless limited yeah. edition for 2019 yeah uh, i picked that up at Sodis. that was a good cigar i was uh, with i would smoke that one again um uh, what was one of yours
1: uh don carlos um i just hadn't had one in a while uh, the classic it's mostly a hemingway uh, Fuente and uh, I believe it just has a different wrapper on it um, well, but
2: there's yeah, still camera wrapper if I remember correctly the Don Carlos blend is a is a little bit more amped up I think than the standard Hemingway blend correct but I would I would have to ask uh, Carlito that because I don't know that for a fact but that's the way I remember
1: it but I yeah I believe you're right
2: that Don Carlos blend it's legit
1: dude and Oh yeah.
2: it's been legit for 25 years
1: yeah. Yep. all day
0: yeah, um, I I also smoked I another drawer that I was un sort of unpacking and sorting through in my humidor. Um, uh, it was very old. It, it was an old Dunhill um cigar. The uh, um, oh what was it, the nineteen oh seven or whatever? Oh yeah, sure. Um, probably a ten year old cigar. I just grabbed out of one of my bottom drawers that I hadn't seen in ages. And smoked that, and it was. Uh, I'll be honest, it was pretty lifeless. Was it really after the, after this much time? Aged it was, out. I don't know. Aged out. It was just kind of lifeless. It just kind of sat there. There was no real, no real anything to it. It, it tasted fine, mm-hmm. but um, you know, if I had a box of those, the that was still unopened from that many years, I would probably, uh, you know, wouldn't be reaching for them all that often. A little bit, a little bit dull.
1: My budget cigar for the week was a Chillin Moose Two. And, you know, for a $5 cigar, tell you what, that Chillin' Moose series, both the one and the two are great. And uh, the second, the, you know, is a really good cigar for five bucks. And,
0: yeah. Uh, I've, I still uh, haven't had the Maduro. So oh, that's the, what I had. Still haven't tried it. Oh, so, you know, maybe one of, one of these days.
1: Steve, how about you? Any uh, notable smokables over the last week that you've had?
2: Look, I've spoken mostly my own stuff, so yeah, yeah. I'm not biased. I mean, I smoked. Uh, I smoked a sin compromiso today that was made in a unicorn shape by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a it was a mix up between me and uh, Yasser at the factory. My Spanish sucks, and uh, I wanted him to make me ten unicorns pre-production for the 2019 production, just so I could make sure that everything was on par and somehow that got translated to, he made me 10 sin compromisos in that shape. Um, and I, I sent one to someone and when I smoked it earlier in the year, I smoked the thing I was getting a unicorn. And what I got was I got a unicorn shaped sin and I was like, wait a minute, this tastes like sin compromiso. And that's when we worked out that the mistake had happened so they had made 10 of them. So I said, hey, put bands on the other nine so I don't forget that these are not unicorns because they look like unicorns. And uh, they were okay, but they weren't like, I wasn't like bowled over, but I was smoking the day after we made them. And the blend wasn't tweaked for the size because normally I tweak everything to work within the format. This was really just kind of the base adaptation to make it work in the format. And uh, I wasn't like wowed by it but I sent one just as a a gift to somebody as a, here's something unique. And he said it was wonderful. And that made me go and grab one of the ones today to smoke. Um, I don't think it was as wonderful as he thought. I appreciate the accolades, but I I can see how that can be improved. Um, The other thing that I've smoked a lot of this week is the, uh, the famous 80s landed. Hmm. So I, I snagged a couple boxes of those. And so I've smoked quite a few of those. And, um, I have a Muestra that we're going to uh, release next spring called Unstolen Valor. And uh, I actually didn't make the blend. It'll actually be the very first cigar I sell that I wasn't the principal on the blending. Mm. Um, it was kind of a, a challenge project that I had given. I wasn't intending on making it Muestra at all. I had just challenged Raul Diesla at the Noxa factory to, to make a cigar on his own, and he's very capable, very competent cigar maker, but they, that fact it doesn't own any products that they personally make and sell as their own. They make things for other people. And uh, I, I'm, like, I'm like, Raul, no, I, I want you to make a signature cigar for you. And it took a while because it's kind of like, well, what do you want it to be? How do you want it to be? What do you want me to use? And so I'm like, no, you're missing the point, Raul. What I want you to do is I want you to make a cigar that you absolutely love irrespective of me don't i'm not part of this equation at all and then he dragged his feet for like six months to even begin (laughs) and i finally just guilted him into it and he, he he made he made something he made a couple things um that were really really good and uh and i was thinking you know they have some brands that are grandfathered um and i'm thinking you know what maybe we can make a brand, but nobody knows who Raul is outside of Nicaragua. Some people have a little bit of an inkling because of Roma Craft and Esteban Diesel. Esteban and Raul are brothers.
3: Right. Oh, I yeah,
2: didn't know that. Yeah, they're both Dominican. They're both brothers. They both operate factories in Nicaragua. Esteban at Roma and Nicasueño and then uh, Raul at Noxa. And uh, so I started thinking that you know what, maybe a good way to introduce Raul to people is to make it one of the muestras because uh, if we made a muestra de Raul, nobody would buy it because nobody's ever heard of Raul. So I think, you know, making a cigar and attributing it to him, that's why i decided to call it Unstolen Valor because so many people in our business take credit for work that they didn't really do. Mm. Us at the concept of Stolen Valor is very prevalent in our business. And part of it has to do with the fact that just the way the marketing of things work. Um, you know, I, I know I know people, bloggers and consumers, they say they don't like all the bullshit, the nonsense and the spinning and the marketing. But the problem is you're, you're almost forced to do it. Mm-hmm. If you don't do it, nobody tries anything, nobody buys anything to decide if they like it or not like it. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy the way the whole thing works. Yeah. So... Um, I have a cigar that's going to – called Unstolen Valor that we're going to release that uh, Raul made. That's why instead of Stolen Valor, Unstolen Valor because I don't deserve any credit other than saying, wow, Raul, this is really good. Let's stuff it in a box and make some cash. You know? So, yeah, I'm becoming much more like a brand owner in that one point. You know what I mean? (laughs) Than than my uh, my uh, my normal MMO. So I've been smoking a lot about Stolen Valor, I'm and really, I'm really pleased with it.
1: One more question for you from me is um, when you are developing a cigar, is there uh, one particular Vitola that you do to, um, to test that blend out?
2: Yeah, I, I, I work in Toro. Okay. Six by 52. Uh, the only time I don't start in Toro is like if it's a Muestra and I know this is going to be a Lonsdale like Naka Tamale. I know it's gonna be a Lancero, like now, leave me the hell alone. But if we're talking about just, you know, hey, it's time to make some test blends, I start by making a six by 52, and that's where I go. Uh, Traditionally, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago even, uh, Cuban Corona Gorda size, more of that five and five eighths by Mm -hmm. six, was kind of like the template but everything like myself has gotten fatter over the years. Where really fifty-two has kind of ended up in the middle of the spectrum nowadays. Yeah, you know I mean, so it's it's kind of a good base point to start in a fifty-two ring uh, for me. Fifty, fifty-two. But I start with fifty-two. But I think most most factors today do their core development in fifty-two rings, unless they're making a specific a, Vitola, a, a Liga Vitola specific. Yeah. And once I get that done, I then end up saying, okay, look the blend in the Robusto is identical to the blend in the Toro. Um pretty much that whole normally the with proportioning and adjusting, anything that ranges between 48 to 54, 56 is pretty much can pretty much be the same blend with just the materials uh the amount of material scaled up or down for the proportions. Uh, once you start getting sub 48 you really need to make a change for between forty 44 for 44 five forty47 it's kind of a, a grouping uh, sub if you're making a uh, petite corona corona 40 41 42 ish 43 ish that's a separate grouping. Once you get over 56 and you end up into that you know that Gordo territory. Uh, the blood has to be tweaked, in my opinion. Now, a lot of people don't. A lot of people just scale up and scale down, but, but the Matola smoke differently.
3: Yeah,
2: they smoke differently because they burn at different temperatures. Yeah. And because of that burning at a different temperature, it makes the cigar taste significantly different. And there's really it's very rare that you can make a cigar, even with adjusting, that will taste the same in a like a forty four ring gauge as it does in the 52. There's just no way for you to tweak your way to where, yes, you can tell it's the same. You can tell there's, you know, there's a commonality. There's a thread that connects them, but you can't do a direct, oh, this is just a miniature version of the bigger one. Yeah. It's just not possible.
1: They don't scale.
2: It, It just doesn't scale. It doesn't translate. I think in my particular price, the one that's the most, Impressive for that is in me, K Rita. I have a cigar called a Gordita, which is four by forty-eight.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Garrett, Garrett
0: that, knows that that's my that's that's like my I I I, I smoke them way more than I should. That it's, it's I think it's maybe one of the
2: yeah the Gordita of my favorites. One of the favorites of the office. It's my wife's favorite. The yeah, Gordita literally smokes like it was the Toro hit with a shrink ray gun. Yeah, like it's just smaller. Everything about the way the gordita smokes—it's like it smokes like a toro. It tastes the same. It feels the same. It's really kind of a—it's—it's not normal. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. uh, the gordita and the toro smoke very much the same, and I and I like that. And I end up smoking a lot of gorditas when I want something smaller. Whereas in the same line, I have a, a very small, much smaller production, pequeño, pequeño. We don't really actively sell them. I mean, we sell them, don't get me wrong, but we don't really push them because it's a 4x44 format. And it's peppery. It's more peppery. It's more spicy. It's more bitey. You know what I mean? Which for some consumers is great. For other consumers, no, it isn't as good. I'd rather smoke the Gordita, which is four ring gauges larger, that gives me the same experience as the other meat k But But... Uh, you know, that 4x44 Pequeno Pequeno, it's kind of like off on a little island of misfit blends of its own within the BK Rita family.
0: That's why I like the Gordito because it, it's just, I think it's the out, out of all the sizes in that blend, I think it's just got great balance. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, it's just it just hits the nail on the head for me. And that's why I've smoked through so many boxes of them because I think it's just...
2: I think it's surprising to most people when they, when they smoke my smaller formats is how long they last. So you look at a Gordita, it's is a four-inch cigar. You're like, oh, this is a 35-minute smoke. No, that's like legitimately a 45, 50-minute smoke. Yep. Gordita will last as long as almost yeah. any Robusto in the marketplace. Yeah. The general rule of thumb, most of my cigars do tend to last longer. Um, the ones that don't, that I think are more on par, uh, with the traditional burn-through times, compromiso is more traditional. Uh, brulee is more traditional. But the other stuff, the heavier-bodied stuff, yeah, it all smokes a little slower, a little cooler. takes yeah. a little longer.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, hey, guys, for you watching and listening, um, a couple things coming up uh, next week on the 17th, we have uh, Mike stepson Kebich, if I'm saying his name right, I'll never say his name right, uh, from uh, Cigar Hustlers Podcast and Cigar Hustler Retail. Um, he's going to be on the show a week from tonight. Uh, and the following uh, week, on Tuesday the 24th, uh, Mr. Jeff borshowitz from Florida Sun Grown Tobacco and Corona Cigar Company. Will uh, you're, you're be, uh, what's that?
2: You a great guess.
0: Oh, we're, we're, we've are we been very fortunate. Yeah. People have been very very receptive uh, to getting uh, um, getting on our show. And we've been um, we've been very fortunate, really grateful to everybody who's been on our show. And we have some more coming up later in uh, later on, even into October, we've got some uh, uh, some guests in, in October. Uh, so there's some uh, good stuff enough, uh, good stuff coming up. Um, um, so I will, uh, you know, we'll, we'll advertise those and get the word out about those as soon as we can. Um, Steve, tell everybody a little bit about uh, any of the big, big things you've got coming up uh, over the next month. I know you've got a uh, yeah. basically a completely booked uh, September and October. So uh, give the listeners and viewers a little taste of what they can see coming up from you soon.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're just now shipping the Miki Rita tricky Traka, So those are starting to go out to the stores. Um, the other thing that we have that's now going out to the stores is the, 2018 production of the unicorns are now being shipped out to the retailers so those are going to start hitting the shelves in the very near future um, we're a hundred percent sold out of those so whatever they bought is all there's going to be there are no more for the remainder of the year um, and you know I have uh, have a couple anniversary events this week one at my friends at two guys smoke shop their big anniversary dinner and I have the uh, twins' anniversary uh, this weekend, and then, like many in our business, I'm uh, I'm jetting off to Europe for Inter to back. and I'm I'm doing an event. Uh, it'll be my very first cigar event ever in Europe, um, and that's a cigaragua, and I think it's a sales event. and I think I'm going to be bored stiff. So, <laughs> I hope I hope I hope the Dutchies bring me some stroop waffles and uh, some beer, so yeah. you know, get me through the day. So, yeah. So I'll be at Dortmund, and then I have to go back and look at my calendar because I don't even remember what you know when I was telling you earlier, and I was actually literally looking at my calendar. Oh, and then I got the uh, Don Derma release at the very end of the month uh, with uh, uh, with Ronnie at Secreto Cigar Bar in uh, Ferndale, Michigan. Yeah. I don't know. Does he like to be said he's in Ferndale, or does he like to be in Detroit? I never...
0: Well, we'll say Ferndale. The address is Ferndale. We'll say Ferndale. Yeah,
2: the address is Ferndale. It's, it's right there, just... North of Detroit proper, it's part of that whole Detroit metro area.
1: Yeah, and uh, Steve, for those who uh, maybe don't have a retail shop close to them, or maybe they don't carry your product, where can people find your cigars?
2: Um, you know, we're not in that many stores. I I don't actually know the number because I don't keep track, but I guess we're probably somewhere between three hundred and fifty and four hundred. Um, like I said, I don't know, but we're, we're in pretty much all of the best ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, you know, we're at Corona, we're at Smokin', we're at the big online guys too. I mean, we're, you know, we're at the, we, our accounts are very different. You know, um, part of it has to do with just the way we approach it from jump. Um, we don't do a lot of active solicitation of accounts. I'm kind of of the view that it's better to just wait until they make the, the conscious decision to carry the product because um, listen what, what am I going to say oh my cigars are the best oh my cigars sell great oh you know what I mean it's yeah. just nonsense they hear all the time yeah so it, it's actually better in my opinion to wait until they make the conscious decision to bring it in whether it be hey they're interested. They like it. They want to have it in the shop or they're just tired of being pestered by consumers coming in and say, why don't you carry this? I want you to carry this. And finally they just crack and they're like, okay, I'll carry it. I don't want every retailer shelves are full. Yeah. Yep. So in order to bring my cigars in, it means some other person's cigars have to go out. Right there. You go into these humidors. There is, there isn't a square. There isn't a linear inch of space anywhere in anybody's humidor in the country. Yeah. So we've kind of taken this approach where it's just better to wait. And what that means is we have this kind of odd mix of uh, really small, little accounts, you know, and we have really massive giant accounts um, at, at the same time. And the other thing too is, you know, we, um, you know, we, we, we really don't sell based on deals and discounts. I mean, we did the IPCPR deal this year. I think we offered something in January or February, but it's not normal. Most companies have like ongoing specials for the retailers that every month there's something, you know, that you can get a better bite of the apple on. And just because we've been selling through, uh, there's just, there's been no real reason to do that. Look, if it gets to the point that I start seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory, just stacking up and growing, Um, then maybe I'll have to change my tune. But that hasn't been the case so far. And and in most weeks, it appears like we we open two or three new accounts a week right now.
3: Man. Um,
2: You know, and it's just really literally from them reaching out to us. And uh, for consumers that are interested, though, if you go to our website, com, there is a, uh, a, a, a retailer locator on there. Um, but yeah, there's perfect. There's tons, awesome. there's tons of shops that sell our product. The problem yeah. for yeah. me is very few shops carry everything. Right. So, look, we have a very, we have a surprisingly wide portfolio at this point. Right. And so you know, look, shop. You know, if you're a shop and you got 600 facings, well, you can't dedicate you know 15 of your order to Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust, and I don't blame them.
3: You yeah, know,
2: I understand. Yeah. So you kind of sometimes it's I always tell people just because they're on the retailer locator site, I'd recommend calling them before going out of your way to find out. Oh, do they have what you're particularly looking for in their inventory? Is it part of what they stock? Because you know, not many retailers stock macigno macigno. Yeah. Not all retailers are Muestra accounts. Not all retailers are Sin Compromiso accounts. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's always wise, you know. The, the the bigger online people, they they carry a pretty wide swath, you know. And even the mid tier guys, you know, yeah, they they do too. But uh, if you're if you want my cigars, they're findable. Yeah, they are.
0: Yeah. Well, we. Uh- we really appreciate your time tonight, Steve. I know uh, you got a busy month, and uh, we appreciate you giving us your Tuesday night to our viewers and listeners. And I know everybody appreciates the information and just hanging out and chatting about everything from sports to, uh, you know, animals to <laughs> cigars <laughs> and tobacco and everything else in between. Uh, so thanks very much for your time.
2: Oh, no. It's a pleasure talking to you, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Enjoy. All right.
0: Uh, hang, and hang with us on uh, on the studio after we close out the live broadcast, if you would, please. No problem. Um, hey, guys, uh, for all of you watching and listening, we appreciate your time as well. Uh, thanks yeah. for continuing to follow us on How About That Cigar. Uh, there's new content up on HowBoutThatCigar.com, so take a peek at that. There's some new stuff up there you can look at. Um, if you have any questions, as always, hit us up on Facebook or send us an email on the website. Uh, and until then, Burn cigars, not bridges. Take care, guys.